Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet podcast. Richard Lane with you on Friday, April the 19th. This week for a change, we're looking at a viewpoint, specifically whether more should be done in the emergency room setting in particular to give help to people with severe alcohol problems. Often they present to emergency rooms at hospitals and are often sent on their way. In this week's podcast, Dr. Ryan McCormack, who works at a hospital in Manhattan in New York City, puts together a proposal suggesting that the medical community at large should be much more accommodating to people who have severe alcohol problems. Earlier, I spoke to him on the line from New York. It's Ryan Patrick McCormack. I'm affiliated with the New York University School of Medicine in the U.S. and work primarily at Bellevue Hospital also in New York City. Dr. McCormack, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. You're the author of a very interesting viewpoint published Friday, April the 19th. And this is looking at the treatment or rather lack of good treatment of people with severe alcohol dependencies, severe alcohol problems. And you set out quite a persuasive argument for how we should treat this very specific group of patients differently when they come obviously usually to the emergency room. Can you just define the problem here? As you said, this is a very specific uh, patient population with severe alcohol disorders. They have a number of concurrent medical, social, and psychological comorbidities as well or, or dysfunctions. They're often perceived as resistant to care or non-adherent to care and have revolving door admissions into emergency departments. They typically don't uh, end up re- receiving any true consequential treatment. In your viewpoint, you quite early on make reference to this thing called compulsory care, looking at other countries. Can you just comment on that before we discuss your proposals in more detail? The terminology for compulsory care is is a little different throughout the different countries. We are speaking primarily of involuntary care that's for non-criminals as opposed to diversion of criminal sentencing for as an alternative sentencing. And looking at patients, committing patients to involuntary care because they're seen as sick individuals and a danger to themselves in need of treatment and not simply detention. It might be called sectioning or uh, therapeutic detainment in other regions, but that's the general idea of what we're talking about. In 80% of countries worldwide, there's legislation on compulsory care, and it's incredibly varied and often outdated in the United States. It varies statewide, not just the interpretation by, by the states of how what is what is legal or allowed, not only does that vary, but the implementation varies and the type of detainment and the type of facilities. But you undertook a bit of research at the hospital you're connected with, Bellevue Hospital in, in Manhattan. Tell us about that and how that has informed this paper in The Lancet. What we did is we used an algorithm to identify patients that had presented to the emergency department with great frequency for a few years uh, that were chronically persistent high users of the emergency department who also had a diagnosis of alcohol use disorder. Then we looked at the top users, so what we cho- who we chose to look at were patients with 10 or more visits in two consecutive years and really studied this population in, in a, a number of ways that included chart reviews, following them as a cohort, doing qualitative uh, interviews, And we also implemented an intervention where we coordinated with local agencies, including Department of Health and Homeless Services, the fire department, and many uh, departments within our institution to implement an intervention using these existing resources in collaboration to try to intervene on on these sickest individuals. 
Sure. What did you find? Were you successful? We've learned a tremendous amount about this population, and, and they part of what def- and how to define them. It was, uh, I mean, characteristically, they have profound social dysfunction. They're precariously housed or homeless. Of this group that we were looking at, they're they had an average homelessness of 14 years, primarily on the street, not availing themselves to the shelter. They often had cognitive and psychiatric manifestations. Over 90% had received some psychiatric diagnosis. 50% had severe mental illness. Uh, they had physical and brain pathology, whether it was related directly to their alcohol use or uh, other comorbidities. 40% had traumatic brain injury. Their Charleston score was 5, which is highly predictive of uh, short-term mortality. Their overall mortality has been, of uh, this cohort that we've been watching, has been about 8, 8.5% or 8.6% per year for the three years that we've been following them. But the point is that you managed to see some benefit, though, from the program that you implemented. Yeah, so the program that we discuss in this uh, manuscript, the people that were not responding to are less restrictive alternatives. There were 14 who were involuntarily committed to our dual diagnosis unit. A couple were admitted more than once, and it was for incrementally longer periods of time. And it seemed to provide some stabilization and a interruption of their downward trajectory where we were able to comprehensively assess the patients and uh, develop a plan, initiate treatment. And by and large, none of these patients had motivation for care or interest in their personal health care and just weren't engaged in it, provided an opportunity to to help them develop motivation, and, and there was great success with that and, and, and with coordination with our local partners. And uh, of the 14 that were committed, seven of them went to were discharged in, and through our resources. Six of them ended up in permanent housing. The other side of this is that there were five that were found to be so severely incapacitated that they were not able to live, live or function independently. And I think that was the other really telling thing, that not only did we have success with some of these patients that were basically considered or perceived to be lost causes, there was some success, but then we also found that these patients who are seen as alcoholics and not really with greater depth than that, five of these 14 had had severe cognitive disorders where they were unable to care for themselves on a long-term basis, and two of those went to state mental institutions, and uh, two were going to go to nursing homes, but around the time of this, there was a, uh, a legal case that the interpretation of the state statutes on civil commitment uh, were interpreted as not being allowable for alcoholism or pure alcoholism. There are obviously human rights issues here, aren't there? And and legal issues, because as you mentioned earlier, taking what, what could be perceived as paternalistic action is, is at the very least, that's unfashionable, isn't it? In, in the days we live in now, where it comes to human rights, to suddenly involuntarily take someone in, into care is a difficult thing to do. It's clearly a strong ethical topic. It's been a, it's a really great experience exploring it. The human rights and protection of civil liberties, there's a strong interest in that, and there has been for a while. What we're really trying to demonstrate here is that we're not trying to come to a conclusion saying that these patients should be civilly committed, but we would like to have that as an option, as a way of either restoring or restoring one's autonomy. 
by temporarily restricting their autonomy, we think that there's a possibility that we can restore them to a life where they have self-determination, where they are able to act on their genuine interests. So when we see them in the emergency department and they say that they don't want medical care or medical treatment, some of that is, we believe, influenced by their need for or their, their impending alcohol withdrawal and the inability to really see what their uh, genuine interest would be if they had some period of sobriety and treatment. Thank you very much. So is that effectively your call to action? The fact that you think from your experience that, that society at large, the medical community in particular, should be just taking this issue of this very specific group of patients more seriously? I think that they require assessment and treatment that is proportionate to their degree of severity and that they receive a dedicated uh, care plan just like you would with somebody who uh, has coronary artery disease or presenting with a myocardial infarction. I mean, they have a high morbidity and mortality, and they, we really, there's a lack of evidence to show how to care for this population. There is precedent for compulsory care. It's been occurring for centuries, and unfortunately, there's a really a paucity of rigorous scientific study that uh, the study that has occurred, a lot of it's methodologically flawed. Some of the laws are outdated, and there's Obviously, there's so much potential for abuse of, of this that we that the call to action is, one, that we explore how we can treat this population better and provide them better care, but also a need to have policy in place that allows us to do that. And it's also a call for better research for us to study these findings and, and study these laws and update them and make sure that civil liberties are protected. A very interesting topic, really interesting to hear what you have to say. And of course, it's all in your viewpoint, published online on uh, Friday, April the 19th. So Ryan McCormack, on the line from New York City. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. Thank you very much for having me. Many thanks again to Dr. Ryan McCormack and to you all for listening. See you next week.